Welcome to Run Out Grooves. It's a sports podcast about music and a music podcast about sports. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we are back. I'm your least favorite lupine, Wolf Rambats, and I'm joined by Dave Fonseca. Hey, how's everything going? What's up, Wolf? What's on the menu today? Well, on the pod today, we're going to compare and contrast how culture views and considers the past in music and sports. And then, as we do every pod, we'll also give you our recommendations for the week. You ready to do this one, Dave? Nothing compares to you, my man. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll see if Babe Ruth could hit a backfoot slider from Bad Bunny. Want an inside look at the music industry? Join Corey, Curtis, Holly, and me, Aaliyah, as we interview music professionals and go over hot topics in the industry. Listen to C-Squared on Spotify today and get the knowledge you need to market your music or just learn more about the artists you love. Could Babe Ruth hit today's pitching? Could Bill Russell even crack a G League roster with today's focus on three and perimeter D guys? Could Walter Payton shimmy and shake his way out of the clutches of Aaron Donald? These are the familiar arguments that continue to be debated to death on sports talk shows. Could the legendary old guys still be good in this modern era? The beats of this argument have become so familiar that Balzac Sports, a satirical Twitter account that, it's not funny, has continually catfished ESPN talking heads with hot takes shaped in that style, such as a fake Ja Morant saying that Michael Jordan would just be another superstar in today's NBA. While arguments like that, whether they're real or not, make for good grist for the hot take mill, most sports talk fans younger than 40 seem to agree that sports stars are better now than they have ever been and would dominate old sports stars in the same fashion as bringing, I don't know, like an Uzi to Waterloo. Meanwhile, in the music side of the culture, Kate Bush's 1985 single, Running Up That Hill, A Deal With God, is still in the top five of the Billboard Hot 100. Few music commentators seem to argue about whether Kate Bush could hang in today's musical landscape because, well, she's doing it. In fact, the argument seems to be far different. They don't make them like that nowadays. In music, people seem to prefer the old stuff. So, why is there this split between these two pastimes among your average 35-year-old partaker? In sports, new is better. In music, old is better. Which is it? Or are these questions even legitimate? We're going to break that down today in what I'm guessing will be a more existential run-out grooves. So Dave, I'll throw to you. What's the deal with this duality and how we process our two main diversions? It's an interesting question, and I think that they are both reflective of the fact that these arguments show that sports and music are more than just pastimes now. They are markers of our identity. We don't just watch sports and listen to music as means of passive entertainment. We use them to express who we are. So anytime anybody says something particularly provocative about sports and music, the first question I ask is, what is this person trying to tell me about themselves? Now, it's probably true that if you were to put a 1950s basketball player into a time machine and transport them to a 2022 training camp, he'd struggle to make a team. But I think what the people who fixate on this point are really trying to say is, I think respecting previous generations is lame. And on the pop culture front, I also concede that changes to the way art is patronized and distributed has made it harder for unique and inspiring music and movies to have a big cultural impact. But again, 
I think people who hammer away too hard on this point are really saying, I think kids these days are lame. Bottom line, I think there's some merit to both of these claims. So I want to throw it back to you and ask, are there more compelling ways to ask these questions? Are there more compelling ways to ask these questions? Uh, Probably not. All right. I guess that's the episode. Thanks so much. Our theme song is by Newsweek Preston. No, but uh, seriously, like, while I think that these conversations have been done to death, and I don't think there's much more meat on the bone of these conversations themselves about whether, like, would Wayne Gretzky score as many goals as he did with goalkeepers that are trying, so on and so forth. Like, I think all that's super boring, ultimately. On the sports side, I think the only interesting conversations left to have are the big what-ifs, where it's less about transporting people from different eras, and it's more about what somebody's impact could have been on sports and culture. You know, like, this stuff just absolutely runs the gamut. Like, what if Pee Wee Kirkland catches on with an NBA team? What if Hank Gathers and Len Bias live? What, what is their impact on the NBA? I'm also thinking, you know, in a less misogynistic world where there is a formidable women's professional basketball league, like what kind of damage could Cheryl Miller do in her prime in that setting? One of the transcendent great basketball players, you know, of all time. And, you know, like thinking about in a less racist world, like what could cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige do? So I like, I think those are the, the, the interesting conversations left to have. However, I think you brought up two really excellent points in your intro. The first being that, yes, we use these as markers of identity. I think the way that the internet has been structured, particularly social media, that forces everyone to kind of like relitigate their personality and their identity every single day through pop culture touchstones such as like, what do you think of the new Beyonce album? It's kind of forced us into this area where we're the eternal teenager, where we're constantly trying to substantiate our identity. And I think that these conversations are kind of the way that we're stuck doing it. The other thing is just, you know, the, the, the question itself, like why is there this split between sports and music? Where in sports, new is the best. In music, old seems to be the best, at least you know, among this straw man imaginary cohort of a 35-year-old uh, engerger of these two pastimes. I think that this is going to be largely, and I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes here to start out, you know, sports gets better when you have more context, you know, the rules, you know, the players, you know, the dynamics of the sport and the league and the history. However, pop music gets worse when you have more context because you kind of know the cynical, commercialized nature of why it's being made. Right. So I agree with that to a certain extent. I absolutely agree that certain types of music become less interesting the more you know about them, especially music that has a strong mystique around it definitely becomes less interesting as you demystify it. That's almost definitionally the case. Now, my question is, does sports always get better when you understand more about it? So for example, 
the statistical revolution in baseball. We understand the game and who's good and who's not good at a deeper level than we ever have. A classic example of that, let's say this year, is a guy like Andrew Benatendi, who was an all-star for the Kansas City Royals. The conversation about him on social media has been, he's hardly an average player because he's not making hard contact. He's getting lucky on a lot of you know, soft contact. He's not actually a good player. Now, does knowing that make baseball more interesting? I would say it makes you a better fantasy GM. It makes you, if, you are, if you're trying to like, think of what kind of roster you want your actual GM to construct in subsequent years, you can make a more interesting argument about why a player like Ben Attendi shouldn't be a part of it. But it demystifies the game in a little in a sense that we're so better able to objectively quantify player value. And I think this connects to the conversation regarding cross-era evaluation and comparison, because on the one hand, yes, it's absolutely the case that if you were to take a baseball player or a basketball player from the 1940s or 50s and ask them to compete today, In this hypothetical time-traveling scenario, the hard-drinking, heavy-smoking, calisthenics-at-most-exercising players from that time wouldn't be able to compete in the current era. But I think that is an example of having so much information about pitchers' revolutions per second and the speed of the modern game and the way the game is played and what players are asked to do. All that information, all that demystification of the contemporary game has led you to a conclusion that is causing you to talk about athletes of former eras who have done so much to build and grow the game in a way that is totally like objective to the point of being dehumanizing. So yes, if, if you are, with all, the, with all the information we have about the game now and how it's built a more efficient game that's played by the best athletes who's ever played it, has it led us to draw conclusions about previous eras of the game that are totally uninteresting? I think the, the gap that we're experiencing between the two eras is a weird quirk of modernity where kids are able to play with the 60s Boston Celtics on NBA 2K with the ratings that are contextual based off of what was happening in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And then they watch highlights of like Bob Cousy not being able to dribble with his left hand. Right. And you're like, fuck out of here. Right. That this guy is like a 90. Right. <laughs> I'm like NBA 2K. So it's weird having all this at our disposal. I don't know if we're so much dehumanizing the past in that we have this weird connection to the past that we've never had before, where the stories of past heroes were passed down almost as they have been throughout history, which is going to be orally. Mm -hmm. But now we can, you know, call up highlights, highlight packages on YouTube and check it out for ourselves and look at that stuff and be like, whoa, this is like a completely different game. So, like, I think it's fair to the kids to an extent to grant to them that, yes, it was a completely different game. I think our contention is that things change and that's okay. 
it, it, it would it would it'd be as if voice recordings of Abraham Lincoln were unearthed. And all of a sudden, we had a connection to the past in a way that wasn't just mythic. Because the written word tends to have a more mythic quality than more concrete visual mediums like film. Yeah, I think the point that you made about having all the like, there, there is enough video footage of Bill Russell and Babe Ruth playing. It's, it's, you know, it's grainy. In some instances, it's sped up um, that they feel contemporary enough to put into a modern conversation that they probably don't deserve to be subjected to. Like, we don't talk about the qualities of the you know, mythic first person who ran the first marathon in ancient Greece. You know, there's, everyone recognizes that that'd be a totally pointless endeavor. You know, we recognize that that's a part of a continuum of history that in some ways resonates today, but is not like relevant to our, our modern lives. Nobody would say, you know, the guy who ran the first marathon would get smoked at Boston in 2023. It's a, it's a foolish thing to say. What's, what's the point of saying something like that? But because though everyone acknowledges when they make these comparisons that Ruth and Russell are about as remote as it gets in terms of the sports they played, they still feel the need to like drag them into the modern era and compare them to contemporary athletes. Now, I think the reasons why this aren't fair to do are fairly obvious, and we should just state them real quick. Players from previous generations didn't have access to modern training techniques. They didn't have access to modern nutrition. Um, They didn't have access to modern coaches who would teach them the most efficient way to approach the game. I think the reason why you and I think that these athletes would be able to compete in the contemporary game is because at the end of the day, their acumen as players would allow them to acclimate rather quickly once they were given access to all of these modern amenities. So I think the larger question is, and this is getting back to the root of this conversation, is why do people feel the need to unfavorably compare players of previous eras to the players of today? I think largely people just want to feel important. So we want to feel like we're important, that the things that we love are going to last. And also, you know, humans just have this deep need to kill your idols, to be iconic class, and to destroy what the previous generations held dear. I think that's what's happening in sports. Music, on the other hand, seems like a completely different can of worms. Right. Yeah, if, if we're in an intergenerational war when it comes to the evaluation of pop culture, there, are, there has never been more class traders. People who are insistent that the contemporary music of their era is the worst it's ever been, and that the music that came before them is the best that's ever existed. So whatever that impulse is to make one's own generation seem important and to assert the inferiority of previous generations, that instinct that exists in sports does not exist with culture. Why do you think that is? I think it just comes back to context. 
yeah, I think like nostalgically people fall in love with the music that is just happening during their high school life, because again, it's experiential. You're not really thinking so much about the music per se. You're thinking about the first person you danced with this song, you know, doing a beer run in the parking lot and the, the, the attendant comes out and like kicks the door of the car. Like the, the quality of the music doesn't really matter so much as the quality of those memories matter. Right. Oddly, when I talk to people that are super into music, the stuff that they consider to be bulletproof is the music that happened right before they were born. And I don't really know why that is. Thinking of like the punk period of like 1977, like I think all that stuff is bulletproof mm-hmm. because I wasn't there. Right. But it's still right. modern enough where it influenced so much of the music that I heard down the line, mm-hmm. where I consider it to be extremely important. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. When I think of the bands that I get emotional in defense of, very few of them are ones that I listened to while I was growing up. Because, you know, I, I don't really feel the need to defend, like, so let's say, for example, early 90s grunge. That music has already been through the critical ringer in so many different ways that that battle's over for me. But yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly bands that predate me. And usually, if I'm going to get into a, a, a bitter argument about music, it's going to be less that people are saying something is good or bad. It's more that I get frustrated when people try to recontextualize how that music was received in the moment. Like it bothers me when somebody says that a band was more influential than we knew them to be or other way when they say that they were less influential than they were or when they say they were part of a movement that they weren't a part of. Yeah, I think when you have less context for music, I think that's like, I think that's the butter zone. Right. I think a lot of this has to do with the, the prime demographic age for enjoying each of these pastimes. So for sports, probably now, as, as much as we might feel sentimental for the sports teams of our younger years, the time that you probably spend the most time watching professional sports because you have the leisure time to do it after work uh, probably would be your 20s and 30s. That's why you see a lot of you know, sports-obsessed men in their 20s and 30s being the ones making this argument about the players of this generation being better than the players of any generation that came before. However, your prime music listening years are really more your high school years. So that's why people in high school would probably be the ones to say, the music happening now is the best music that's ever existed, but we're past that demographic age range. Now we're in our 30s. So now I know you're not guilty of this crime. You are a huge advocate of contemporary music, or at the very least, you try to keep a positive attitude about new stuff that's coming up. I fall victim to music doomerism from time to time and will at times assert that it's actually a down period for pop music. Uh, maybe the incentives are broken. Maybe the patronage models, the distribution models just aren't working the way they used to. But I think the reality is I am a 38-year-old adult man, it's probably not appropriate for me to be spending as much time thinking about pop music as I do. And there's more and more of me than there's ever been because the way our lives are structured, the amount of time we spend at our laptops, working at our laptop jobs and killing time on social media, 
while you're in an airport terminal or while you're watching a baseball game during commercials, you know? So like these conversations have always existed, but there's never been more people in the arena who aren't in the game. It doesn't really matter what I think about pop music because it's not being made for me. It, it truly isn't. I hate to lay the blame of everything at the feet of social media, but one of the things that I keep thinking about is that people were not supposed to talk to everybody and hear from everybody. Right. This is why celebrities and world leaders traditionally are the people who are most insane. Right. It's because they can talk to everybody and they can hear from everybody. And now everybody has the capacity to be a celebrity and a world leader. And like, this is where we're at. And we're all stuck trying to relive and piece together this fractured monoculture, which I think is a, a good word that we coined in one of the past episodes. Right. Trying to put it together, this fractured monoculture, like it's Humpty Dumpty and trying to have these old world conversations that would, you know, have a uh, time to live of the duration of the dinner party you're at. And then nobody would ever talk about it again, but this stuff just like hang, hangs around in the ether forever. Now earlier in the, uh, in the, in the introduction, we referred to sports and music as pastimes, which I think is a notion that doesn't really exist as it used to anymore. The idea that there could be something that you just passively enjoy, that you could just enjoy baseball in the moment and then sort of stop thinking about it after the game, or maybe just think about it to yourself or just enjoy a piece of music and uh, relate to music purely for its salutary impact on your mind. What music can make you feel when you listen to it. Now, you, you mentioned the notion of these things being identity markers, which I think is absolutely the case. What that amounts to is just posting a lot about these things, you know, sort of like filling social media with as many of your most provocative thoughts about these topics as you can. Now, I don't want to be too dramatic about this, so I won't speak for anyone else in this regard, but I'll just speak for myself. But this sort of content is able to inflict psychic trauma on me. When I see somebody say that Bill Russell couldn't compete as a professional athlete in 2022, I get really upset about that. I can't control the fact that I get upset about that, but I do. When somebody says that the Beatles suck, I get mad. I can't help it. It makes me feel bad. Now, the fact is, as you stated before, there's no reason I should know what so many people think about these topics. I mean, there's no reason. I mean, in, in, a, in, a, <laughs> in a previous iteration of a 38-year-old man's life, he wouldn't know what a early 20-something across the country has to say about any of these topics. I know what 500,000 people in that age group feel about these topics. And I feel like the end result of that is obviously I've never, I can't quit social media. It, it's, it, I mean, I, I, the, maybe the healthy thing to do would just be to completely unplug from all of this. Instead, what we're doing is we have you know, things like this podcast, which are an outlet to talk about how we're making sense of all this stuff. Now, this isn't 
exactly a problem because music and sports still exist as passive forms of entertainment. That if I choose to be more healthy in how I consume them, I can just consume them in that way. My concern is, is that the contemporaneous accounts of what sports and music mean to people right now are being infected by that kind of thinking. And as a result, when people reflect on what was happening in this era that is so highly mediated, they're going to be seeing contemporaneous accounts that are misleading. So that is, I think, why this is worth having a conversation about. I think if there's a takeaway that I think is important here, it's not necessarily quit social media. It's not necessarily stop posting your opinions on sports and music because they're able to do psychic trauma to people like me. <laughs> I, I think the point here is I, if there's any way we can lessen the incentives to engage in intergenerational conflict in our evaluation of contemporary life, I think that would be a really positive thing. I think what's driving these two conversations is something that I hit on previously, which is that we have access to everything. On the sports front, I think the reason that we think that sports are as good as it has ever been right now is that we know more about other teams than ever before. Where back in the day, you know, you would see, like just thinking about baseball, you'd see your team the teams in your division, that was kind of it. Right. Everything else was left up to box scores. Right. So you didn't see what the little thing, like you didn't see the little things that were happening with the Minnesota Twins, right? Right. It was totally outside of your sphere of thought. They were just numbers in a box score that you read in the newspaper. Same thing is happening with music, where you have just access to all of recorded history. Right. At this point. And so... What is pop music, new music, and I think a great topic for another time is going to be how do you balance listening to new music and old music, and even if it's worth doing. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing, too, is like we have a new problem to face here, and it's not just filtering out all the voices that are screaming at us from our phones 24 hours a day. It's curating our own engagement with all the stuff that's available to us. Whereas in 1994, your experience as a pop culture and sports consumer was curated for you by your local broadcast networks and your local radio stations. And if you were a more committed fan, magazines. You could read like two or three magazines. And so the territory was smaller and the maps were more defined. Now, the territory has exploded. There's no map, and there's a bunch of people screaming on the street corners which direction to run in. And as a result of that, there's nothing, there's nothing passive about engaging in culture in any way now. Is that a totally bad thing? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, because there's more options, and as a result of that, if you are committed, if you are committed, you're not stuck listening to the four new metal songs that are being played on repeat constantly on the radio in 1999. 
the the problem is instead of having those four songs stuck on repeat, there's five hundred thousand songs at your fingertips at any given time, and if you aren't careful, you're not going to form a connection to any of them. Right. Speaking just from a pop culture point of view, you said about 1994. In 1994, your reality was just 1994. Right. Now, your reality is all of recorded history. Right. Right. So it makes sense that if we're thinking about music from like a Spotify model, where now, if you are 16, everything is new to you. Everything is pop music. Right. Whatever you can find in Spotify, that's going to be the music for you. Right. It would make sense that these same people would look back in time at Ted Williams and do the same thing. Where suddenly, like, Ted Williams becomes the Steely Dan of baseball. Right. So it makes sense that, that these players from the past that we would just throw them into the future because we're doing this right now with TV. We're doing this with music. We're doing this with movies, so on and so forth, where everything is just available at our fingertips. And because all this stuff is just available to you, it makes sense that we would also go back to sports stars and be like, okay, like, like if, uh, you know, if the Lakers could pick up Bill Russell on a, uh, uh, on that, yeah, like injury exception this year, like, do you, do you think it would make the starting rotation? I don't know. Maybe. Right. You made the point about when you're 16 now, everything is new to you. Now, when I was, let's say, 10 years old in 1994, everything was new to me then as well. I mean, everything was new to me. And I did listen to older music in conjunction with contemporary music back then, just by way of literally just going into my parents' closet and digging through their old CDs and trying to dig out what seemed interesting to me based on the CD covers. But what feels different now is how the the nostalgia machine is regurgitating everything into the present constantly now. Like things are being remixed, things are being incorporated into the present at all times. You can think of it this way. For most of human history, history was seen as a continuum, a line that moved from one point to another. And if you wanted to listen to old music or watch old sporting events, you were still accepting the fact that you were moving backwards in the line. You could travel back and forth, but you knew the difference between moving forward and moving backward. The advent of social media has exploded the continuum. Things do not exist from point A in the past to point B in the present to point C in the future anymore. There's just an infinite number of non-contiguous nodes that exist everywhere. And so everything is brought into the present and compared as if they are contemporary because everything is contemporary. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I can't say, but it is 100% absolutely fucked up. (laughs) Uh, Good stuff. Okay, let's leave it there. While this effed up world might not move in a straight line, this podcast definitely is going to. So let's take a quick break. And then on the other side of this, uh, let's do some recommendations. Yes, it's 
Hey, this is your least favorite lupine, Wolf Rambats, and I'm here with Steven Davis, Stevenson Davison. How you doing, man? Doing great. Hey, so uh, we got a podcast called the Plague Rages Podcast. It is a heavy metal podcast for two heavy metal writers talk about music. And uh, Steve, Dave, like, what kind of shenanigans do we get up to? Oh, you know, we like wax poetic about our sad dating lives. Did you have any, any other hobbies other than listening to metal? Jimby, bad news, bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about what our new favorite tracks are. I have no shame saying this, that End of Time is on my list of dumbest songs that have almost made me cry. Oh, dude, Future Cars. <laughs> we revisit albums that we think maybe deserve a second chance. I've been regretting this ever. Like, <laughs> Yeah, all that good stuff. So if uh, you'd like to check that out, you can hear us at plaguerages.substack.com. All right, and we are back with recommendations. All right, you're up first, Wolf. What do you got? Okay. Composer Austin Wintory revisited his celebrated score for the video game Journey with the new album Traveler, A Journey Symphony. To ring in the game and the score's 10th birthday, Wintory reorchestrated and reimagined the pieces and recorded them with Kristen Nygus and the London Symphony Orchestra. You might remember the London Symphony Orchestra as the group of musicians that backed floating points in Pharaoh Sanders on last year's Exquisite Promises. As you'd expect when you link up with an orchestra to explore your old work, Wintory's compositions have a newfound depth, both sonically and emotionally. This comes through especially on I Was Born For This. Tina Gua reprises her lead vocals on this song as a technical marvel as Gua sings in five different languages but the emotional impact resonates far greater. With a full choir, the song has a Mahlerian hugeness, but retains a lonesome fragility that still wrecks me. The score to Journey is a pretty good one to reprise as the game is about the passage of time and reincarnation. I find that I replay the 2012 game whenever life gets tough because its beats remind me of life cycles, how there's good and bad as we trudge ever forward towards a conclusion. When people used to debate the narrative power of video games, this is the kind of game that they talk about, one that gets richer every replay because the context of one's own life seems to change the story. It's my favorite video game of all time, and Wintery's soundtrack is a big reason why. It's great hearing it 10 years later. This is so interesting because when the Spotify wrapped of our lives is done, you know, as the, as the God particle is released in our mind and we slip away, it's probably going to be a video game song that's the most played because we just spend so much time in front of video games and those tracks just repeat over and over again. And I think it's a really positive development that the quality of music in games is improving at such an exponential rate. So I haven't checked out Wintry yet. Um, I'm really looking forward to doing it. And uh, hopefully it will knock off you know, the score to Super Mario World as my most played video game song at some point. <laughs> Incidentally, the song that I've heard the most in my life, and I know this for a fact, is Napalm Dest's You Suffer. Because for about five years, I had that as a text alert. <laughs> and boy, uh, did I ever have a contentious relationship with the girlfriend I was dating at the time. So I heard that <laughs> a lot. 
<laughs> that that reminds me of uh, of one of the the funniest moments in the last season of Mike Judge's Silicon Valley when the character Gilfoyle had a an alert on his laptop that told him when it became inefficient to mine Bitcoin, it would just play "You Suffer." <laughs> and he was he was the the storyline was about him working in an office environment for the first time because uh, he was you know some programmer who was just working in a living room for previous four seasons <laughs> and. The, in, throughout the entire episode, that's, that, that song plays like 58 times. <laughs> it's sort of like the, it's the narrative driver of the whole episode, which I, I, hopefully that turns some people on to Napalm Death, though I doubt it. So Dave, uh, we now know how I suffered, but why? Uh, what is your recommendation this week? Well, Wolf, all week I've been racking my brain to dig up some tunes that you may not have heard before. It's not an easy task. So rather than diving deep into the mines where I know you're constantly digging away, I want to suggest something that was hiding in plain sight. So this week, I am suggesting John Anderson's 1992 double platinum neo-honky-tonk classic, Seminole Wind. I'll start by talking about the title track. Seminole Wind is a simple song, a four-chord strummer built around an E minor chord, but it's drenched in the stuff that makes neo-honky-tonk one of my personal favorite musical genres, most notably the weepingly melodic interplay between fiddle and the guitar. The whole album is a minor miracle. Just a quick rundown, Anderson had some chart success in 1982 with the wholesome thumper Swingin', but parted ways with his label several years later when a follow-up hit proved elusive. After a few more solid but commercially overlooked releases through the late 80s and early 90s, Anderson's story was supposed to end. He would cease to be a go concern and become a footnote, the guy who sang Swing It. Instead, he struck gold. On the verge of 40, he hit the studio with pop slash rock slash country renaissance man James Stroud. Anderson's and Stroud's collaboration offers the best of both men. It's deeply rooted in honky-tonk, but is also fluent in the pristine studio rock of the early 90s. Classic example, Anderson's cover of the Dire Straits album track, When It Comes to You. Anderson's draw on Stroud's pristine production is a match made in heaven for Knopfler's aimed at Nashville Mopefest. Elsewhere, Straight Tequila Night offers the kind of slice-of-life storytelling that Billy Joel would give his left hand to write. But it's the title track that is truly must-listen. Anderson's Ode to the Everglades of South Florida is all sorrow, no sentiment. It's a song about environmental devastation in the Deep South, and as the melodies mourn, Anderson's distinctive moan seems to tell us there's not much we can do anymore but sing about it. Anderson continues to write and tour as he approaches 70, but Seminole Win is his masterpiece and a monument to what musicians can achieve well past their expected expiration date. Wow, I, I, I'll definitely have to check this song out. Uh, speaking of expiration date, you know, this is another topic of ours that we talk about. Like, what is it about this era of country music that kind of feels like its last gasp almost? Yeah, you know, I think there's the, the, the irony here is that the neo-honky-tonk movement was a reaction to pop country that had grown up through the late 70s and early 80s. And it was trying to bring country music back to something a little more elemental while still making use of all the great studio equipment that was available at that time. 
The thing is, is that Nashville is an all-encompassing entity that turns everything into a commercial juggernaut that it gets its hands on. So Neil Honky Tonk arises as an effort to push back against overly commercial country music, and it produces Garth Brooks. So um, I don't know what the movements in country music are now that's trying to drive back towards something a little more, and I hate this word, but it's on the tip of my tongue, authentic. Of course, there's guys like Sturgill Simpson and Chris Stapleton who are making Roots Your Country music, and they kind of stand in opposition to the Florida Georgia lines of the world. But even that sort of lacks the just the gold-plated pop sensibilities of Neo Honky Tonk. I think this is just a moment in time. A moment in time when country music artists wanted to make something a little bit closer to the bone, but weren't running away from commercial success either. This is just a great era of country music. And even if you're the kind of person who doesn't like country music, or you're the kind of person who's only into alt country, this is pop country, and it's really solid, and I I highly recommend it. Well, Dave, I think uh, you just signed yourself up to make a Spotify playlist of Neo Honky Tonk. But uh, jokes on you guys. I don't have a Spotify account. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll wait on that one. Uh, Where else can people find you and what else is going on? All right. So you can, uh, you know, if you want to follow me on Twitter, God knows why you'd want to do that. You can follow me at Dave FONS. If you want to follow my band and if, if you like heavy metal, there's far more reason to follow the band. We're at ancientenemy.rise. Yep. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter for uh, the same God knows why reasons as Dave expressed them at W Rambats. If you want to read some of my heavy metal writing and listen to the podcast I do with Steve Dave, the Plague Rages podcast, you can check that out at plaguerages.substack.com. Dave, you got anything else for us this week? Yeah. Uh, Ian, I just thought of a good reason to uh, follow both of us on Twitter. And that's if you want to see the stuff that doesn't make the podcast, just look at our mentions to each other and you'll get, a, you'll get an episode of stuff that wasn't quite prime enough to make the cut. Yeah, I think, uh, I think this week it was Robert De Niro talking about a thrash grind band from Ohio. So, you know, really that, that primo grade A material that yeah. we're trotting who, out there. Who needs a premium feed when you have two <laughs> Twitter geniuses going at each other? In the yeah, yeah, thank God Twitter's uh, not public to everybody, right? <laughs> not archived. We're just, we're just texting each other, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not archived for eternity. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that is it for us. Our theme song is Welcome by New Sweet Breath. You can find that banger on his 1996 full-length Demolition Theater. You can find more of Greg Markle's amazing music at gregmarklemusic.com. You can subscribe to Run Out Grooves on your podcast of choice. Leave us a rating and review, please. If you like us, share us around. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at runoutgroovespod at gmail.com. For Dave Fonseca, this is Wolf Rambats signing off. Goodbye. Later. Yeah.